Thank you so much. Good morning. We are involved through the course of these Sundays in the midst of the summer. To, we're involved in a series we're calling the Critical Questions series. These are accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that describe various settings in which Jesus Christ poses what we will call critical questions in order to address the assumptions that people might have regarding him, assumptions which may be completely inaccurate or partially inaccurate. And what he does is he addresses those assumptions and forces people to reevaluate who he is and what their relationship to him. Jesus ought to be. And I believe what Christ has done for us is to give us tools in our evangelistic toolboxes to allow us to find ways to enter into conversations with people lovingly, wisely, effectively, so that we might be able to present Jesus in a way that is highly respectful of the person we're speaking to at the same time, God-honoring in our approach. So I want you to join with me this morning as we're turning toward Matthew chapter 9, first of the Gospels, and in that ninth chapter, you and I find that Jesus Christ is in a setting in which people, because of his growing popularity, have hemmed him in. And as he's being hemmed in by the growing populace, showing increasing interest in him, he will find that there's a tremendous opportunity presented to him to provide a healing. What I want you to do is to ponder with me not only what he does, but why he does what he does, and when he does it. And look for the questions Jesus poses. We're now in this ninth chapter... And in this first verse, Matthew writes, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We're going to be looking at these words, and we're going to be asking, now, how does this relate to life in 2014? We're going to start by looking to our Lord in prayer. Thank you for a wonderful weekend. It's a very unique weekend when a 4th of July occurs, where it does, when it does. 
We know that we have people traveling. We have people who've come for the weekend to be with extended family, and we're praying for safety as they will head back eventually to their home settings. We're praying likewise for the students that are away this weekend, and Lord, minister to their needs as free church students from across this nation gather together to worship you. What we're asking in these services this morning is we are able to garner these thoughts in your word and apply them in a very practical way to the basic practical issues we face. And Father, what we know furthermore is that just as a church is gathered to worship you, so also churches scattered during the week and we're going to be in constant contact with people who are going to desperately need something pertaining to what matters most, a relationship to you through Christ. So, Father, we're asking that the questions that Jesus posed throughout the Gospels will equip us to be more effective still in representing you in the various settings you place us in. Then, mind, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems like almost yesterday, though it was in 1999, when our nation was taken aback by the Columbine shootings. Much had been written subsequent to that event, trying to make sense out of that great tragedy. But there was a particular issue that caught the attention of the media. Because in a distant town and in another state, grieved as they were over what had taken place, a banner was stretched across the main street of that town. And the banner simply read, We forgive you. This caught the attention of the media and writers such as Charles Krauthammer and eventually even articles in places such as Reader's Digest which began to pose the question, did they have the right to forgive? Who does have the right to forgive? Someone in a distant setting who was unaffected by that tragedy makes a statement with regard to the fact that they forgive. The question is, are they in a position, were they in a position to be the ones to offer forgiveness? Now, that is a very critical question. And what fascinates is that when you and I turn to this passage of Scripture, we find ourselves in a situation now where Jesus Christ assumes the right to forgive, which will take his opponents back. And they're going to have to reevaluate who this Jesus is and why this Jesus says what he says. And does he have sufficient authority to make such statements? 
So what I want to do with you is to probe these verses carefully, reflect upon them, and draw four significant observations that I think Matthew would want us to be able to grapple with with regard to the identity of Jesus Christ and the ministry he has even in our midst today. Now the first flows out of verse 1 and 2, and we're going to phrase it like this. The number one is Christ forgives sins. I want you to note with me the faith that Christ values. We pick it up now in this first verse, and we find that Jesus is getting into a boat. And you and I are told that he crossed over and came to his own city. He has intentionally moved himself and his disciples toward what will now be the centerpiece of his ministry, the capital, so to speak, of the early days of his ministry, that of Capernaum. Capernaum was a highly dense Jewish population base. But what also fascinates us is that there was a a highway that in essence stretched between the Egyptian zone and the Assyrian zone, known as the Way of the Sea, by which people would be able to take reports of what occurs here and take them back to their native lands. Jesus is very intentional in how and where he positions himself for effective ministry. So should you. So should I. He gets into a boat, he crosses over, and he comes to his own city. And what we see in verse 2 is that some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, what Matthew doesn't tell us, what Mark and Luke do tell us, is that Jesus Christ is in a house in Capernaum, And the house is so filled with people, and they're obviously spilling over onto the streets. And this paralytic's friends are so burdened that the great physician will do his miraculous healing that what they decide to do was to carve out a hole in the ceiling and then lower this paralytic through the roof until he has been positioned at the feet of Jesus Christ always wondered what the owner of that house was thinking when this hole was being created. Don't you wonder such things? Well, now, there's Jesus. He's the great physician. And the word is out that he has the capacity to heal. Why, the Roman centurion in the 8th chapter of Matthew, in fact, had said to Jesus, with regard to Jesus' authority, that Jesus Christ didn't even have to go to his home in order to have his servant healed. And Jesus, in great respect for the centurion's faith, acknowledged the fact that the centurion recognized highest authority. Now the question is, the people in the vicinity of Jesus, will they recognize that Jesus Christ has highest authority? And so now, here is this paralytic. He's being lowered on a bed at the feet of Jesus. What does the crowd see? The crowd sees the physical need, don't they? What does Jesus see? 
Jesus is not merely committed to eyesight, but to insight. And Jesus sees what the onlookers are overlooking. He sees the spiritual state of this individual. They see the paralytic, but you and I are told in verse 2, Jesus saw their faith. Now, for some reason, some commentators, including Barclay, in fact, speak of the faith simply of the friends of the paralytic. But when it says their faith, we can naturally also assume it's the faith of the paralytic involved, that this is inclusive involves all in the process of positioning this man before Jesus. Now, Jesus sees the faith of this individual. And you and I, because of the miracles he's been producing throughout that land, might naturally expect then for Jesus to seize the moment and say, Rise, take your bed, and go home. But what Jesus does, and this is what fascinates you and fascinates me, is that Jesus utters the unexpected. Instead, what Jesus does at this point is to say to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, he could have healed first and then spoken those words after the fact. Instead, he forgives first and then provides healing after the fact. Now, your mind is working and you're asking yourself the question, why? Oftentimes, I've spoken with physicians overseas and missionary settings where they find the great challenge of people who have come for physical healing and once the healing's been provided, you don't see them again and their longing is to be able to somehow communicate the matter of spiritual truth that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sin but they settle for the external and the temporal without addressing the internal and the eternal. What Jesus does then, understanding the human condition, is he begins to work from the inside out. Instead of going the way that people would expect because of the growing fame of his capacity to perform healings, such as in Capernaum with the mother-in-law of Peter. Jesus says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now that would seize the attention then of the people. He's now addressing the internal state of the person. So I missed you last week. I was... I was down with another one of those kidney stones I get afflicted with over the course of time. And I was reminded of a passage where Jesus had spoken to a woman and said, he said with regard to that woman, 
Let him who is without sin may cast the first stone. And I read that passage and knew I was in big trouble. Jesus is sin conscious. And Jesus is very much aware of the fact that the underlying desperate need of humanity, which suppresses this matter of sin, is the tremendous need for forgiveness. Billy Graham tells the story of a, of a father in Spain, and his son had become rebellious and run away from home. And the father was so burdened that it finally in Madrid, in a last desperate effort to find him, put an ad in the newspaper, and the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you your father. And the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, roughly 800 Pacos showed up, all seeking forgiveness from the father. Now, Jesus understands the underlying issues involved. And while everybody else is caught up with the paralytic's physical needs. Jesus now addresses the eternal situation at hand and says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Though he could have started with the whole idea of rise, pick up your bed, and go home, but he wants to draw even his opponents out, you see, with what he's about to do. Number one, As Christ forgives sins, I want you to note with me the faith then that Christ values at this point. And what he is doing is he is connecting faith with forgiveness. And in the process, he's erased the consciousness of the ultimate issues that people face. But notice with me a second observation. Then number two, as Christ forgives sins, note with me the opposition that Christ faces. In verse 3, Matthew tells us, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, Well, this man is blaspheming. Now, the scribes are professors of the law, teachers of the law, a great great professors in the law schools of the Jewish people. Where did Matthew first introduce us to the scribes in his account? Why, in that story in which the wise men had approached Herod looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod, like all the rest of Jerusalem, was all shook up. So he turned to the scribes who understood the Old Testament and wanted to know the whereabouts of this one who was to be born king of the Jews. What fascinates us is that they knew where to go in the Scriptures, but they did not go to Bethlehem to find the one revealed in the Scriptures. 
they did not take time to investigate the evidence. Now the scribes are positioned in the presence of Jesus. And they have the opportunity now to investigate the evidence. But what I want you to notice here is their line of reasoning. They jump to conclusions. And they said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now I want you to critique with me their line of thought. What are they thinking? They would start by saying, only God can forgive sins. Do you agree or disagree? You would agree. Second of all, this man claims to forgive sins. Would you agree or disagree? You would agree. He made that claim. But thirdly, this man cannot be God. Therefore, fourthly, this man blasphemes. Now, they started off with solid evidence, but when they got to that third point, this man cannot be God, they moved into a realm of assumption. Now, what you and I have to do is to look very carefully at the people we're ministering to and ask how can we raise the consciousness in the heart of that individual, to evaluate very carefully the assumptions that they make about God. To what degree are those assumptions valid or invalid, or are simply a mixture of? What these people have done at this point is to begin to disclose their assumptions without taking time to evaluate the evidence. What do you do with this? What's important here, when you are talking with people who resist Jesus, to equip them to evaluate their own personal assumptions. Because generally speaking, opposition is simply based upon assumption. Get that person ask, what assumptions do I hold to that are beneath the surface of my beliefs? What is the reason for my assumptions? Do I believe that God somewhere in the past let me down? Where I had an expectation of God perhaps pertaining to a healing? Perhaps to some form of intervention to get me out of a crisis I was experiencing? And the heavens seemed silent. And so my assumptions have been rather rigid with regard to who God is. Remind yourself when you are mixing with friends and relatives over this 4th of July weekend that those who might be opposed to the gospel are also those who have embraced some assumptions of varying degrees of validity and invalidity. How do you help them evaluate? Well, in the movie God's Not Dead, you might remember that there was this dialogue, if not debate, that was unfolding between a student whose name was Josh Wheaton and his professor, Professor Radisson. 
And Professor Radisson had gone out of his way to try to extinguish all evidences of God from the classroom. But what Josh Wheaton did was that he began to slowly but surely equip the students in that class, including the professor as well, to begin to reevaluate their assumptions until he reached a point where wisely and effectively there's this encounter with Professor Radisson who turns to Wheaton in a fit of rage says, I hate God. And then Josh Wheaton wisely and effectively responds, but how can you hate someone if he doesn't exist? What had lurked behind Radisson's atheism was a time in his past where he had felt that God had let him down. He had become disappointed with God, disillusioned with God, until he simply denied the reality of God. And what this young student did was that he began to surface assumptions in order to get the class to start rethinking their views. Now, likewise, what you and I have to do is not just simply retreat when somebody opposes Jesus, chances are you're talking to somebody who's hurting, somebody who was injured spiritually along the way. Lovingly and wisely, you may have to take them through the plot line of human life until they get to the point where they begin to contradict themselves and then wisely and effectively equip them to begin to reevaluate their assumptions. This now is what Jesus is about to do. And he's teaching us how to love those who are opposed to the one we love. This then is going to lead us to this third observation. We want to extract it again from these verses. The thirdly, that as Christ forgives sins, note with me the question that Christ poses. Beginning now in verse 4, you and I are told that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, when you are sharing the gospel with other people, Recognize the validity and the value and the significance of a well-crafted, well-designed, lovingly shaped question. Jesus does. Jesus, as we've said in prior weeks, is the perfect answer. And furthermore, Jesus poses the perfect question and times it effectively, as must we, in order to get people to reevaluate false assumptions. Why do you think evil in your hearts? And right away, 
what he has demonstrated is a capacity to go internal with them, just as he did with the paralytic. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? He sets up now an either-or for them to begin to think. And what we want to do is to equip people to think effectively. Look at what explodes with meaning in verse 5. For which is easier, Jesus now asks you and me, and them, of course, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now, if you're a teacher, you know that a purpose of a test is to reveal understanding, to equip the student so that if the student truly does not understand, it exposes the student to their lack of understanding. But the questions in the test are meant to reveal. Jesus now is putting these professors of law to the test through a series of questions in order to be able to reveal to them their false assumptions in Christ's true identity. Likewise, what you and I have to do is allow God to confront us with our false assumptions and reveal to us his true identity. And so now Jesus gives them this either-or test. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say rise? and walk. Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, had said once, we run the company on questions. When Greg Dyke became Director General of the British Broadcasting Corporation in 2000, he went into every major location and assembled the staff, sat down and asked, What is the one thing I should do to make things better for you? He would listen. And then follow up with another question. What is the one thing that I should do to make things better for our viewers and listeners? And the corporate culture was so refreshed by his questions that the boss took time to listen, and as a result, it earned him incredible respect. Albert Einstein, when he was grappling with one of the great scientific discoveries in history, asked himself this question. What would the universe look like if I rolled through it on a beam of light? Now, the purpose here is to surface underlying assumptions. And the purpose, furthermore, is to reveal Christ's true identity. He will pose the questions, but he will then put himself to the test. Fascinating. Right now, he poses the questions. And the question is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Now, that's what the modern skeptic would probably say. 
But for the religious leaders, the teachers of that time period, they might be prone to say, in light of the previous history of Jesus, rise and walk. And allowing their minds to go back to the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha, where Elijah was able to produce the miraculous so that God, the exclusive God, would be revealed. It's possible that these scribes would say the latter. But what Jesus is going to do at this point is to meet them at their true interior point of need, which he does to you and he does to me, as he gets us to rethink what our relationship to God through Jesus Christ should truly entail. And as he does so, he brilliantly poses questions to reveal to us eternal truth. Are you doing that as a parent? Are you doing that effectively in relationships? Don't merely be the answer person. Be the biblically designed question poser, drawing out the assumptions and revealing the reality. It leads then to this fourth observation that as Christ forgives sins, note with me the authority that Christ reveals. He goes on a little further after posing the question. It's obvious he does not wait for their answer because he's the answer, you see. But, now he gets very purposeful, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Now their hearts are skipping a beat. Because the scribes know the Old Testament. And they know that in the Old Testament, there is reference made dramatically in Daniel chapter 7, when verse 13 and 14, God speaks of this one known as the Son of Man, who comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and we are told, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And now Jesus is claiming to be that one. Jesus is making a connection with where they are at in their thought process. And so should we. Right there in that room, as this owner is looking at the hole in his ceiling, Here's Jesus saying that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he stops mid-sentence. He does not even complete the phrase. This is dramatic. He turns to the paralytic and says, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he doesn't fear the fact that it might not work. When Apollo 11 was being ready to carry people to the moon, President Nixon asked William Safley to write a speech entitled An Event of Moon Disaster. 
Because if anything went wrong on the moon mission, Nixon would then read the speech on television, the radio communications with the moon would be cut off, the astronauts would be left alone to die, a pastor would commend their souls to the deepest of the deep. But instead, on July 20th of 69, Neil Armstrong stepped off the ladder onto the gray, powdery surface of the moon. Jesus Christ does not set up a if this man does not get up and walk speech. He has authority. He doesn't need a backup plan. So in verse 7, you and I are told, he rose and went home. As the old commentator Bengo put it, when he came, the bed carried the men. When he left, the man carried the bed. And what Jesus does authoritatively and dramatically is he reverses the human condition, and now demonstrates visually to those around him through the healing of this man the evidence of what has taken place spiritually to this man that prior this man's sins were forgiven and Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive them. What do you do with such a Jesus? How does the crowd respond to all of this? They're astonished. Because now in verse 8, when the crowds saw it, they were afraid. This Jesus you can't put into a box. He doesn't fit into your U-Haul. Somehow he's too big for all this. And they don't know quite how to frame him. So what do they do? Here is the inadequacies of human response. They glorified God. That is right. But notice the subtlety. Who had given such authority to men. They did not glorify God for having given such authority to the Son of Man. They glorified God for having given such authority to men. They now recognize the authority, but still have not been able to figure out his identity. What you and I have to do then, like Jesus does, is we take strategically, biblically-based questions. Use them as tools to be able to raise up false assumptions, bring them to the surface, expose true evidence, and get people to grapple with the fact that the one who has authority 
is the one whose identity is revealed as the second member of the Trinity, which takes us back to that banner, that banner. Because as that banner was unfolded across a main street in a distant town, and where the people unaffected by the Columbine impact simply said, we forgive you. We begged the media nationwide to ask, and on what basis and what right did that town, did those people have to forgive? It gives us opportunity then to ask the serious question, and who truly does have the authority to forgive? And then point, people to the second member of the Trinity who had authority over that cross, who had authority over that grave, who had authority over our lives. And we give praise to the one who asks the perfect question because Jesus is the perfect answer. Let's stand together. We thank you, Father, in the comings and goings of a 4th of July weekend that we have the tremendous opportunity to reflect upon the blessings that have come down upon this nation. What we ultimately want to do, though, is to thank you, the one who gives blessing and the one who forgives sin. For those coming into these services today who've never fully checked their assumptions, and maybe because they have been hurt sometime in the past, have allowed those false assumptions to get mingled into some bits and pieces of true evidence that have kept them distant from you. Surface now those assumptions and allow your questions to be posed to their hearts, and I pray that they'll embrace the reality that Jesus died for their sins. Put faith and trust in him alone. And for each of us who love you, remind us that not only are we here to point people to the one who's the answer, but also scripturally be people who are able to pose significant questions that get people to look in the direction of the one who is the answer. Jesus. So thank you now for each one here. And minister now to them, their, their families, their life situations, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.